This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Now, what do you know about the billionaire venture capitalist and entrepreneur Peter Thiel? He's been a behind-the-scenes operator, influencing countless aspects of our contemporary way of life, from the technologies we use every day to the delicate power balance between Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and Washington. Yet, despite Thiel's power and ubiquity, no public figure is quite so mysterious. Well, here's Max Chafkin with a new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Now, this is the first major biography of the innovator's life. Max goes into extraordinary details with a page-turner. Max Chafkin on Peter Thiel will join me later in the program. Also coming up, exceptional music for piano from British artist Poppy Ackroyd. First, my guest is Benoit Kampmark. Uh, gentlemen, we have on the program, seems to me like every month or so, just to bring us up to date with what's going on in the world. Benoit is a senior lecturer at RMIT University. He is uh, widely known as, a, as an expert on all kinds of topics, including political and social and, gosh, so many different things, Mr. Benoit Campmark. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure being with you, Norman, as always. Okay, I've given you a list of subjects to talk about, and those include the recent German election, Canada grants asylum to refugees who sheltered Edward Snowden. I'm interested in your take on that. UK's gas crisis, is it real or is it a test? Also, I'd like to talk about the James Bond movie with Daniel Craig. Are we desperate to relive a time that never really existed? I want to get your take on that one. And then I also want to hear what you have to say about Russia threatens to ban YouTube after YouTube shuts down pro-Kremlin channels. So we've got some topics there to talk about. Let's start. Let's go to Deutschland and talk about the German election, which happened on Sunday. Well, Norman, I, th I think as many of your listeners might know, the uh, this was the occasion um, an election where the result would not be featuring uh, the return of Angela Merkel, uh, who has been a figure of Germany and also Europe, and of course even more broadly since 2005. It was unusual because uh, unlike for many political leaders, she actually more or less dictated the terms of her own departure. It's very unusual for that to be the case. Also leaving office uh, being a fairly popular chancellor, I think approval ratings in the 60s and so on, and so she can count herself being very fortunate in that regard. But of course, the in a sense, the election result was always going to be I don't want to say unsatisfactory, but it was always going to be a difficult one to give a result that would be remarkable in any way because, how shall I put it? You know, it was an effort to find Merkel 2.0. That's really what a lot of it was. The, the issue was not to find an anti-Merkel figure or a figure who would depart too dramatically from her policies and her approaches. And the campaigns were very much in that vein, uh, The you know, with the exception of... Uh, 
the, the smaller parties, uh, the primary ones, you know, the Social Democrats, uh, of course, then the Christian Democrats, which is Merkel's party, with the bloc, with the CSU. Uh, it was very much a case of, well, I mean, Lachette uh, was the uh, the CDU successor to, to Merkel, uh, marketed himself as reliable and stable, and uh, Olaf Scholz uh, of the Social Democrats, um, centre-left party, marketed himself as essentially the next Merkel. I mean, he was yes. quite unabashed about that. So the result was, um, and, and I suppose if you read between the lines, it was not a good time for Merkel's party. And I think it, it, was, indica- it was an indication about how worried she was that uh, 48 hours before the poll, um, she intervened in the election itself and tried to sort of uh, put in a few nice words for Amin Dachet. But uh, in the end, uh, Olaf Scholz has every reason to be pleased with the result. And he's currently pursuing what are called exploratory talks uh, with um, parties such as the Greens and uh, the Free Democrats, which is a market-friendly party, uh, business-friendly party. Uh, whereas Amin Lachette claims that, uh, you know, no, it's uh, he's not out of the race. He's also going to commence talks. And so it's going to be you know, a range of possible coalition partners, which is a very long drawn up process in Germany, unlike, you know, those in the States would be very unfamiliar with this process, you know, that uh, you have people of seemingly opposed, diametrically opposed positions, reaching an accord, essentially in a coalition, and a contract is literally drawn up. And it's like a marriage contract, Yes. where positions are hammered out and that will endure for the basis until the next election. So it's quite, it's quite an interesting process in Germany, quite special to that, um, that focus, as it were. There's a couple of things about the German elections that I'm concerned about, um, and that is how that affects the rest of the world. In Europe, of course, how it affects the UK. I heard one commentator from Germany saying that that the they had given the UK many, many options, many chances, and, and tried very hard for them not to go ahead with Brexit. Uh, just, just give me a quick take on that one. Well, I think, so if you take, start from the position uh, of Merkel about this, and you know, Merkel has never been an ideological figure you know, in any true sense. Uh, right. And she approached Brexit in a far more sort of philosophical way. You know, she has said um, on several occasions, you know, that she would prefer Britain to be within the UK to be within the EU. She regrets the fact that the vote, of course, went um, against staying or remaining in the EU. Uh, but she's also was under the view, well, we just have to negotiate that sort of reality. In many ways, it was a far more uh, you know sober assessment than some of the other members in the EU who have treated it as you know, essentially Brexit as a deep, um, even ideological threat to the EU compact. And what Merkel was essentially doing was, um, well, accepting realities and trying to negotiate around that. So what she has been trying to do, and this is something that will be interesting um, under the, the next chancellor. Yeah. Possibly Scholz, but we will have to see. Um, but then uh, as to how the EU tensions, and remember Brexit is a mirror of, inner tensions in the EU, be it with Poland, be it with Hungary, you know, with movements of, these are, these are countries that at any given moment, there are in the EU family, but that's, it's a very tenuous relationship with the EU, uh, given the reservations. And so Brexit remains this mirror and this test 
which is of worry to the bureaucrats and the policymakers in Brussels, in Luxembourg, yes. and these centers. And, and so from that perspective, the German side being very pro-Europe and being very mindful of this, and of course, one of Merkel's legacies was really during a time holding the EU together, keeping the Eurozone afloat, or with cost, of course, with enormous cost, but still doing it. Um, it r- remains to be seen how the, the German, the new German government approaches that because they're very mindful that they, tr- they have to be first Europeans and then Germans. They have to right. be very careful with this yes. game. Yeah. Uh, whereas other Europe, uh, the Poles have no such reservations. They're Poles first. They're Poles, and yes. Say the yes. Hungarians, the same thing. They can right. get away with saying that, but the Germans can't do that. And that goes back to the Second World War, doesn't it? I guess that's exactly it what that's definitely, about. Yeah, that's exactly that, yes, exactly. Now let's go on to uh, topic number two. I'm talking to Benoit Kampmark. He's a senior lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Canada grants asylum to refugees who sheltered Edward Snowden. I was a little bit taken with this one. I didn't quite understand where this was coming from. Can you give us some insight? Yes, well, again, it's one of those curious stories that seems to be a bit under the radar until um, Oliver Stone mentions it, you know, which he did in his uh, film Snowden, and uh, where you know you've got these mentions in the news about the grant of asylum and so on, and and it, it goes back to the time that Snowden was in Hong Kong and fled essentially his boutique hotel and and went underground, or to be more exact, went into the tenements of refugees or asylum seekers from the Philippines and Sri Lanka. And uh, it's worth noting that the reason why these asylum seekers are connected with Snowden is not necessarily that they were there eager to, uh, you know, flout the U.S. Imperium and provide sanctuary to this uh, former uh, NSA contractor. It's because they were encouraged to essentially hide him by their lawyer, uh, the Canadian lawyer, human rights lawyer, Robert Robert, uh, Thibault. Uh, who was representing their claims seeking for asylum in Canada. So it's worth noting that that's yes. the link. Yes. Um, so the reason why this has become news of late is because uh, Thibault, but also primarily, I should add, a non-profit in Canada has been very uh, you know, aggressive in sponsoring the people who were connected with sheltering Snowden in their, you know, small apartments, as it were, during the course of his time uh, underground before he then fled. You know, these are individuals such as Supun Tilina Kelapata, these are long Sri Lankan names, Nadika Dilurishki Nones, and their children, and then also others, Filipinos and so on, who are actually currently in Canada. So they were granted asylum in 2019. So these are the so-called uh, Snowden guardian angels uh, who have been granted asylum in Canada. And this is, there, there's actually, I think if I'm not mistaken, there is one other person left uh, um, who the human rights organizations in Canada are trying to get out. He's a, a former, I think, Sri Lankan um, army deserter, you know, by the name of Ajith Pushka Kumura. And uh, he's currently still in Hong Kong and they're worried about him, his fate. His, his fate. But uh, so there's that side. And then I think it's worth appreciating that, okay, you sort of, you're thinking probably what's going on with the Canadian side granting asylum. The thing is they were already seeking asylum, um, of course, but in Hong Kong, they're particularly tough on accepting asylum seekers. So these individuals have been in a legal limbo for years since 2000, right. 
even before 2013, actually. Um, so the reason why is that they were always going to seek asylum, but Snowden gave them a high profile, which really agitated immigration officials in Hong Kong. So, oh. so they were left and stranded in this legal limbo, and that's why we got these news lately um, that they travelled to Canada. So that's that's that angle, anyway. I'm just, just as a side note, I'm presuming that the American government is not happy about that. Yes, I, I suppose this is one one sort of method of the Canadian uh, uh, rebuke to the United States, and it does. So in, in very mild-mannered ways, uh, yes. taking different positions, but that's one method of doing so. Yes. UK gas crisis. Okay, real or a test? I keep hearing people saying, this is Boris testing the UK public. There's no gas shortage whatsoever, and he's just making this as a, as a test. Yes, uh, well, I, I think Boris is a person who tests everybody at the best of times. Uh, and I, I suppose when it comes to the context of Britain, it's no exception yet. He is right in, in a sense, because there is not an issue of supply. Um, no. It's an issue of a supply of truck drivers. Yes. So, and, and, and so the issue is not so much, uh, you know, gas or, or fuel and so on. It's actually the, as usual with these things, um, as uh, any historical incident with famine often, well, many instances of famine demonstrate it's often not the, the presence of food that's the problem. It's the presence of distribution chains. Um, and in this particular case, the um, shortage of trained truck drivers in the UK has become acute, especially after Brexit. Yes. Um, where tens of thousands of truck drivers have actually left the EU, uh, sorry, after, uh, left Britain. Right. And that's one of the reasons why there's a big campaign now by Johnson's government to actually attract foreign uh, e drivers, especially from the EU, providing, for example, you know, 5,000 three-month work visas, well, yes. being an example, and so on. But when you consider that Britain faced a shortfall of 100,000 drivers, that, that's quite remarkable. There's that. But let's not also forget the other issue is that the, the trucky, the truck driver is a particular breed of um, almost like an aging specimen. And many of them have been retiring of late too. And replacement drivers, trainee drivers have not been given, you know, in, in Britain because of COVID regulations, because of, you know, the interference of the pandemic, they have not been replaced quickly enough with licensed drivers. So there's that shortage in that sense. So that's why Britain finds itself facing not just the, it's not really a gas shortage per se, but a supply shortage from truck drivers, which then has led to a shortage of groceries, a shortage of goods in, in supermarkets and so on. So it's, it's sort of really precipitated a range of other problems as well. Got it. Benoit. This one sounds sort of flippant. It sounds sort of light, but there's a serious part to this one. New James Bond movie with Daniel Craig. I haven't seen it. I have no intentions of seeing it. And I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here and say the James Bond movies bore me to tears. But that's just me, of course, of course. But I'm concerned that this sort of adulation of James Bond and Daniel Craig and the whole Bondish thing is is a is a reference to it's making us are we desperate to get back to a time that never really existed is is this is that what james bond represents and is that what a brand new james bond movie is all about well i think the 
the reality, um, Norman, is that James Bond has this lingering appeal. It, it's, it, it seemed to be running out of, uh, not to use the analogy with gas, it seemed to be running out of <laughs> supply um, <laughs> yeah. at, at a certain point, certainly before Craig came uh, to the, um, the franchise. Uh, right. So, you know, prior to that, it, it just seemed a bit, um, a bit sort of weaker with uh, the tail end with Brosnan yes. and so forth. And of course, they were searching and, you know, around for a particular replacement. And Craig, after initial doubts, uh, seemed to actually seize it by the throat and return. And that's, that's one of the curious things, return to the original Fleming character in many ways, you know, grittier, um, more violent uh, you know, as a portrayal rather than, you know, a Roger Moore, a feat sort of thing with quips and so on. Uh, the, the modern figure, at least the, uh, the way that Craig portrays it, is very much in that tradition of, let's face it, of a killer. You know, yes. He does have a license to kill, 007, and, and he shows it and he proves it time and time again. Yes. Um, and, 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 uh, but of course, it, it's, it's also, I suppose, the endurance of, of a very nice set of parameters, you know, which are pleasant to look at for many people. It's the idea that there is a villain. There are villains. Uh, there is going to be this person who redressed the problem, namely eventually get to the villain. Yes. Uh, and, and then, of course, there's um, sex along the way. You know, there are, <laughs> and you know that sort of thing. So the recipe is a fairly standard one and has worked very, worked very well for Fleming. Uh, and it also, you know, caused a lot of uh, excitement for the followers. I mean, it, it brought people who have tried to play with the Bond idea in like, like, for example, those, you know, the continuation novels, uh, individuals such as Kingsley Amos and you know, yes. Colonel Sun and, yeah. uh, you know, like Sebastian Fawkes, for example. And so it does have a curious lingering appeal, you know, which has, you know, think about, for example, Skyfall at the box office. Uh, yeah. People were astonished that over a billion grossing over a billion dollars. It's remarkable. So, uh, it does have an enduring appeal, and I suppose uh, with uh, with the pandemic, you, know, you can probably expect that people are going to be really enjoying turning up to see this. You know, fabulous escapism, um, and uh, you know, with uh, with Craig's probably last role from what he said, and so I suppose they're going to be reacting rather well with it. So for miserable naysayers like me that never liked <laughs> escapism in any way, shape, or form, uh, I shouldn't be too worried, then, Benoit. No, no, no. I don't think you should be too worried. But, they, but there is, but, but there is, a, of course, a, a following. And I, and I think what I find most amusing by it are these kind of uh, rather weak attempts to uh, give the impression that uh, the modern Bond franchise is somehow friendlier to women or <laughs> nicer, you know, a nicer, whatever that means. I mean, what, or, what is it? So, uh, and of course, oh my goodness me. So if you put in you know, if you make a particular female character more lethal and uh, give her a prominent role, then somehow it, it, it spruces it up. Um, so yeah. I think yeah. it's, it's worth also just noting that uh, the Bond film franchise is famous for killing off female actors. <laughs> uh, so so when, when they, and, and, and both also from a literal sense, but also from a career sense as well, because many who end up acting, um, you know, actors who end up, uh, uh, on, on Bond, it's it's a famous graveyard act, actually for actresses. So once yes. they appear there, many of them simply don't return. So there's right. a danger of them appearing on, on yes. that particular thing. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, Benoit, last question for you. Very quick mm -hmm. one. Russia threatens to ban YouTube after it shuts pro Kremlin channels. 
Yes, well, this is a very interesting one because it, 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 it's a bigger problem than simply threats from the Kremlin to shut down YouTube um, you know, in, in Russia it, because it demonstrates the bigger problem, um, which former President Trump would appreciate too, being knocked off platforms, not being allowed, as it were, to um, express his views uh, on you know, any of the social media or these digital platforms. And so what we happened in this case was something that YouTube has done to others. Uh, for example, Sky News in Australia, it actually knocked Sky News off its platforms as well um, because of violating user conditions. And one of those uh, in the case of RT, which is this broader, it's not just RT, but it's a range of channels associated with formerly Russia today and a range of um, uh, outlets that operate in their language channels in many countries. So these two questions were RT Deutschland, RTDE, and uh, the Philenden part. And these two um, platforms were shut down by YouTube uh, for violating the terms of agreement, uh, for actually publishing misinformation on coronavirus. And that's something that actually has been done to other networks as well. So it's not unusual. This, this has happened. Um, so the reaction from the Kremlin has been to see it as a, um, as a gesture motivated actually or backed by the German government. But the German government doesn't really have much say when it comes to YouTube, to be honest. It's very much a case of how powerful these platforms are Platform, to dictate yeah. those terms. Right. So I think whether and however one feels regarding these networks and shuttering them and so on, I think it does raise the bigger question as to whether uh, it's really in the position of these private platforms to restrict Access, I suppose, on a level, on one level, it is uh, up to them because you you do sign up accepting the terms. Uh, but then again, they're the ones who are going to be determining what is misinformation. They're the ones who are going to be saying, well, this is something that we don't approve of, therefore we'll knock you off the platform. So it raises bigger questions beyond simply the spat between Russia and YouTube. Yes, stay tuned. Indeed. <laughs> in Indeed. that one, yes. It is always an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you for your learned observations and inputs. Really appreciate it. My guest, Dr. Benai Kampmark, he's a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Benai, thank you once again for joining us at Life Elsewhere. It's a pleasure, Norman, as always. You stay well and stay safe. Thank you so much. Still to come in the show, new music from Brighton-based Poppy Ackroyd. Next, Features Editor and Tech Reporter Max Chafkin joins me to talk about his new exceptional book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power, right after this. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. Let us know what you think of our show. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. The book is titled The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Max Chafkin is my guest who wrote the book. Max, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks for having me. 
First of all, there's a word that I'm going to repeat over and over again about your book. Details, details, details. What a book full of incredible details from page one right to the very end. It's jam-packed with so much information. And I have to congratulate you on making it so incredibly readable because quite often books that have lots of details in get a bit sort of stodgy if you know what i mean but this this is in some respects it's really exciting and it's it's almost like a thriller as you <laughs> give us the story of teal let me ask you first of all max about teal about and you've met with him i think your last time was in 2019 in in los yes, angeles that's right. yep. yeah yep. um i'm curious to know just right up front do you like the man well, I think, um, you know, I tried to approach this, you know, as a journalist, right? And yeah. to, to, you know, Teal had been, you know, and, and it's a delighted to hear what you said about the, the detail in the book, because Teal has been somebody who um, there's been a lot of myth making around, right? Yeah. There's, it, there is um, Peter Teal as this kind of um, super villain figure. That's kind of how the left sees him, right? As this sort of behind the scenes player who's like sort of responsible for um, the, the, these, these tech plutocrats and for Donald Trump and Trumpism. On the right, um, you know, people see Teal as this kind of Ayn Randian, you know, Superman, this guy who can, you know, troll the libs, who can build these great companies. He's a builder. And and he's an intellectual. He's kind of he's got it all right. And I went into this trying to kind of question and be critical about both those those ideas, because I think both of them, of course, have a lot of truth. Um, and that's why they've taken off as, as kind of memes. But they, but they're missing huge things. And, and I wanted to try to see um, Teal first you know, as a human being and kind of understand, you know, kind of who he is and where those ideas come from. Cause he had somebody with so much power. I think we kind of owe it to ourselves to, yes. to, to understand that. And then the other thing I wanted to understand is like, what does he believe? And I think to answer those questions, right. And to do a good job, you have to approach somebody with empathy and you, you have to try to, to, to like them. Um, and I, and, and so I did that. Right. And I, and I think there are things about Peter Thiel that are attractive and yes. and you know he's he's very you know people who who are always disagreeing with people are are fun right they're fun to talk to like he's he's an amazing you know cocktail party attendee right like he's always yes. going to say something provocative and yes. um and so i think and and i think he's also and and this is worthy of respect and admiration even even people who are, who are um critical of him uh you know he he's he's incredibly smart about sort of seeing the future and then in terms of like sort of trying to put chess pieces in place to 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 accelerate that process i mean he's 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 definitely been ahead of a lot of important trends now i think it's also important to say and and it's really important to be critical so while while those are things that i i find attractive and worthy of of admiration um teal has also you know put forward a lot of ideas and 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 done things that i find truly terrifying and yes. and so 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 yes, like he's been early on a lot of things, but he's also um, pushed the ideology of further around the, the kind of the supremacy of tech billionaires. This idea that that technologists should be basically be able to do whatever they want, um, and, and and I think that has had a lot of really bad negative consequences. He's um, you know, has this extreme libertarian view on, on taxes that's that goes beyond just like oh, I don't want to pay as much in taxes, which is kind of normal thing you hear from people, um, to you know, almost a desire to undermine 
the the nation state and 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 to undermine yeah. uh you know the United States of America which I you know I as a, I find that really troubling and 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 a third thing I find troubling is is just his relationship and this is kind of connected to the to the last one with with democracy and and he's kind of pushed this idea and and that that democracy is somehow suboptimal he's been funding and and backing and 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 kind of uh, encouraging this really um, insurgent far right uh, part of the of the electorate and elected officials that that seems you know bordering on authoritarian and he's 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 financed candidates who have embraced authoritarianism and that I think is upsetting and I'll just now I'm now I'm, I'm throwing him off I'll give you one other which is you know Teal has um, is famous for for um, this litigation against Gawker Media he he financed yes. a lawsuit that destroyed Gawker Media um, which at the time was a, a, a you know major uh, media company and, and and bankrupted the um it bankrupted the founder bankrupted the company hundreds of people lost their jobs and i think that you know intelligent people can disagree about you know was teal's beef with gawker media correct we can talk about that but i think the effect of that and the effect that that's had on free speech which is another thing that i think is sort of core to our um you know to the country and to our society has been bad i mean you know we he created a situation where people are more afraid to write about billionaires than they were before and i think that is harmful and, and is worthy of criticism Wow, you gave me what an answer to my question there. That was great, Max. I really appreciate uh, everything that you just said there, which is sort of follows up on my my comment that the details, details, details in your book. And of course, the other thing is, it's not often that the title of a book is so apropos. The contrarian, it couldn't be a better title. Thank you for one of the reasons that I asked you about whether you like teal or not and to give your your take on your personal take on teal was i went into your book and i will admit to it that i went into your book thinking i am not going to like this man but as you just explained the more i read the more you explained the more i kind of went hmm there are certain things that i can appreciate certain things that i yeah, I can understand. Did I come away going, oh, I want him to be my best friend? Absolutely not, for all the reasons that you just stated. I want to quote something from the beginning of your book, which I think is really important. You say, according to Teal, the acceptable job choices for a good liberal were pursuing graduate studies in anthropology, counting spotted owls, and educating people about how to use condoms. I mean, it was scathing of liberals, and that is so, it's so wretchedly scathing, it's so nasty, and it's so, but at the same time, it's almost spot on. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, he he is often, uh, you know, I, I, for, as I said, he, you know, he's very good at a one liner. And I think, um, you know, if you were to criticize one one criticism, right, that you could make is that that there isn't a whole lot beyond the one liners that like, you know, a dorm room he's kind of a dorm room debater who has never really, you know, kind of grown out of that or something that would that would be the other side of the, the coin. Um, but I do think that Number one, he is at times, you know, incredibly um, adept at criticizing things that are diagnosing problems in the country um, and also uh, just like very, again, just very forward looking, just 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 really, on, you know, being being somebody who um, saw things early. And, and for that reason, I think it, he's worthy of, of respect. And I mean, I, I, I say that because not just um, uh, because we should respect successful people or something, but because, you know, people who have power you know, or worthy of respect because whether or not you agree with them or not, you got to, you know, you have to sort of understand them to, to, to criticize, I think. Yes. You know, one of the things that you talked about uh, in, in your description of Teal was, um, 
just well everything really that you described him uh, and and, I, and i'm thinking to myself yes and you've got all these quotes in the book about how odd he was people found him just to be a very sort of aloof very strange person but i was thinking to myself at high school and then in college myself there were people that i remember that were kind of a little teal like and it's it's not that unusual to come across somebody that's sort of a bit sort of aloof a bit sort of distant from everybody what's your thoughts about that yeah i mean i think he um had a hard time in school partly because he was an outsider he's an immigrant his parents were german um they they bounced around a lot so you know it's one of these cases where I, you know i don't think there were a lot of roots put down and then there's also a cultural um you know, a cultural gap, a cultural gap, I think, that goes beyond, you know, German versus, you know, American yeah. or something. But, you know, Teal's family, the parents were very conservative and evangelicals. You know, he'd lived in um, apartheid South Africa and and Southwest Africa, which is that was Namibia. I mean, that's Namibia. But at the time, yes. it was an apartheid state, you know, effectively governed by, you know, from Johannesburg. And um, and so I think, you know, that's that means that he's completely bought into this like sort of far right um, you know, you know, calling it far, calling apartheid far right is, is like a horrible understatement. But, you know, <laughs> he's, yeah. but like you get to college, right? He got to Stanford and, you know, Stanford's not even that um, it wasn't even that um, liberal a place. You know, Stanford was kind of the engine behind Reaganism and 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 they almost put the Reagan presidential library there. You know, there are a lot of Reagan supporters at Stanford. But, you know, he experienced it having kind of been this kind of outsider, this kind of from this conservative family. You know, he experienced it as an assault and as as something that, um, you know, where where liberals were really pushing up against him. And I think he that energy and, and the fact that he was bullied, that he was, you know, he's smart and, and you know, he's gay. I mean, that probably plays a role somewhere in there, too. Um, uh, you know, that that being on the outside, I think all of that stuff, you know, pushes him into this very confrontational brand of of politics and actually just like a very confrontational way of relating to the world. And, yes. and there's a lot of power in that. I mean, that's, I, you know, the, the, this, he starts this conservative newspaper at Stanford. That's just really provocative. You read some of the quotes and, and, you know, often just horribly distasteful, but like, you know, always interesting. Right. And, <laughs> and I think that he's able to kind of ride that um, to, you know, first, you know, to this really successful career in tech. This whole idea of being so right wing and a conservative, just give me your little your take on that, because you explain it so well in the book and you talk a great deal about it, of course. So, yeah, I mean, like when I so I've been covering the tech industry for the last 15 years, 16 years and um, kind of conventional wisdom for most of that period about Silicon Valley is that it's a liberal place, progressive place, you know, and that and that comes from the kind of obvious um, observation that the most of the companies are located in Northern California. Northern California tends to be tends to vote um, Democratic, but it also, and I think probably more importantly, comes from the fact that there's been this mythology around Silicon Valley and the counterculture, right? Where, where, um, and it's a lot of it, it's just like with the Teal mythology. A lot of it, it comes from a place of truth. Um, mm. But we, where we see, you know, Apple um, as this kind of countercultural force, where because Steve Jobs was a hippie and he, you know, dropped out of Reed College and he dropped acid and um, you know, and he sort of talked like a member of the counterculture. And as a result, a lot of these companies kind of adopted the counterculture as this sort of touchstone. And and again, there's truth to that. Right. But but it but it never contained the whole truth. I mean, Silicon Valley, 
grew out of the U.S. military. I mean, it, it, the, the Stanford yes. research part was was part of the was the military industrial complex. Um, and and so there's always been that there's always been this thread of you know, hardcore libertarianism, which I think has sometimes been mistaken as something having to do with the counterculture where like, as if, you know, being in favor of, you know, freedom from taxes is somehow, um, you know, the ideological um, relation of being in favor of free love or something like that. Um, but but Teal, of course, um, takes this hard libertarian thread and does something, goes further. And, and I think it's really important that the that Teal's network, which is commonly referred to as the PayPal Mafia, it's this group of people who um, you know work together at PayPal, and since then, with with Teal kind of in charge, have kind of gone around investing in each other's companies, um, in you know moving moving money between them. Employees who who work at one PayPal Mafia company will bounce to another. Yeah. Um, that network really should be called the Stanford Review Mafia because most of the people in that early network were people who worked on this activist right-wing newspaper. And I think there's really a sense where the kind of activist playbook, you sort of see that playing out a little bit in Silicon Valley, you know, in, yeah. in, in kind of right-wing, 80s right-wing activism, right? It's all about it's all about kind of provoking, saying these crazy things. Um, uh, there's like a willingness to kind of bend the rules. There are all these stories from that era of people, um, not at Stanford, but at other uh, right wing college newspapers, you know, sneaking into their sneaking into the college registrar's office and like stealing all the yes. names. And, you know, there's this kind of understanding that like we are on the outside and we need to do what it takes to to to, you know, to change the world. And yes. and I think that kind of, you know, starts to map onto the PayPal ethos. And of course, there the counterculture thing, it's, it never goes away. But there is also this very powerful right wing push that I think has really been overlooked and, and that people should pay more attention to because it's because, it, as I said, it's it's been there from the beginning. If you're just joining us, my guest is Max Chafkin. The book is called The Contrarian, the subtitle, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. It's a terrific read. I, I was thinking I was thinking to myself this morning as I was just preparing for to, to talk to you and I was thinking, I wonder if Max had nightmares at some times when he was just putting this book together. He's trying to get rid of Peter Thiel out, out of his head and all the all the all the details that you were storing in your brain. Well, no, no nightmares, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, you know, most of my nightmares are just the same nightmares as they were before. But um, but I did um but I but I did, you know, uh because so Teal, I met with Teal off the record um, yeah. and I'd met with him a couple of times before, but he didn't participate on the record. He didn't he was unwilling to answer any on the record questions um, and he didn't, you know, help me write the book in any way. Sometimes when sources, you know, sometimes there are these articles or biographies where the 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 sort of subject is kind of secretly you know telling people right. to talk to the author yes. you know that wasn't happening um no. now he never he never did anything aggressive to you know despite having this this reputation as being a somebody who you know not as willing to muck with the press you know i never felt you know directly intimidated nobody ever said it nobody from peter Thiel's uh, direct circle ever said anything that i perceived as a as a threat but he didn't help and and so and because this gawker litigation cast this you know paul over over all things related to Thiel. sources of course uh journalists are afraid of peter Thiel, um justifiably uh but sources are afraid of peter Thiel too because he's he's kind of put down this marker that he's willing to you know engage in you know sort of pretty extreme revenge tactics in order to um to control the narrative about him so as a result you know um i i you know i had to do a lot of reporting a lot of kind of shoe leather of meeting people and and gaining trust and 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 of course 
talking to many of the sources in this book talk to me, you know, off the record or on background. Yes. In other words, because they're afraid that if right. they that if they are quoted in a in a in a biography that is anything but laudatory. And this book, of course, has admiring things in it, but it is not, you know, it's not a, it's not a hero story um, that, that they would be punished. And so, so that was a real challenge. I mean, just, you know, the, the, the way that, that Teal scares people. And, and so, so I had to sort of overcome that and have a lot of, a lot of conversations with, with sources uh, about that. Let's get into that for a moment, Max. And you touched on it earlier on, but let's talk about the big story, the big case, uh, the, the Terry Bowler, AKA, Hulk Hogan, that story coupled with Gorka. It's a horrible story right from the very beginning. I mean, just just the Terry Bowler Hulk story is just ugh, it gives lives a nasty taste in your mouth. The whole thing is just unpleasant. But for my listeners, can you just tell us what you discovered about that, the, the teal side of it and destroying Gorka? So, yeah, it's a Baroque story, as you say. Um, <laughs> so, uh, OK, so teal. Um, uh, the beef with Gawker uh, that Teal has dates to 2008 when Gawker, uh, which at the time was doing, you know, a lot of really important journalism, yeah. but also a lot of stuff that I think doesn't hold up to 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 close scrutiny that, that that most editors would not, you know, would not be willing to publish today. And and one of those things was um, a post uh, with the title Peter Teal is totally gay people. And it was a meditation on the claw, the nature of the closet. But but what it really was, was a Gawker writer saying this thing that a lot of people in Silicon Valley knew was kind of an open secret, but that had never been printed, which is that which is the the the, the fact of Peter Teal's sexuality that, um, you know, Teal regarded that as a real, you know, invasion of his privacy. I mean, it, it was, I, I think, emotionally destabilizing. And on top of that, so it's not just that it's that Gawker was also doing a lot of journalism that's very critical of his business and and teal's business at the time was not going very well right um fast forward so that's the that's the seed um gawker separately publishes a sex tape involving the wrestler hulk hogan hogan um said the sex tape was re was recorded without his knowledge um which is not allowed um and not allowed to you know that's that's a potential invasion of privacy he sues and this lawsuit is going on for years right no one's paying that close attention to it because they assume this is just like a guy, a, a kind of reality star. He's probably looking yes. for a big settlement. But in fact, as we learned in 2016, Peter Thiel was funding his funding litigation and the goal was clear. And it wasn't to get Hulk Hogan, a, a, you know, a giant settlement. It was to destroy Gawker and to do so um, because of this um, this post in, in 2008. And so, you know, there there were people and, and you know, definitely people I respect who who defended Peter Thiel and 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 said that this who kind of took his side said you know Gawker shouldn't have done this they they deserved to um to to be destroyed and uh, I I think you know I, I understand that point of view but again this is something that that have that had an effect on not just Gawker not just the writer of the piece um and not just the owner of Gawker but on hundreds of journalists who worked there yes. hundreds of journalists who had nothing to do with the uh, with this post that had come out eight years earlier um or frankly with the Hulk Hogan uh, uh post and it it create it creates this kind of framework and a permission structure that now any billionaire. Um, can follow and not just Peter Thiel. So people keep asking me, are you afraid of Peter Thiel is going to sue you? And I say, well, yeah, of course, but like I'm, I'd be afraid of any billionaire because what's stopping them from just following the exact same uh, program that he laid out and, and was applauded for in many corners. So it's, yes. I, I, I definitely think that's the, that's the upshot of that, of that story. And that story, as you say, reverberated around 
around media, throughout media, and it's 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 had a lasting effect. One other part of that that's uh, caught my attention, but the whole thing about the Hogan thing and Gorka sort of predated what we have now with Trump and Trump's sort of, I, I'm not quite sure which way to say this, but almost it, power is the wrong word, but people are afraid to argue with Trump and stand up to Trump, particularly in a legal sense. And we seem to have seen this going on since he became president and now since, and of course, after January the 6th as well. I don't want to dwell on Trump, but I but I, I do think that that sort of predates it and it did set things up for Trump. And then connecting to Trump is, is Teal's, I don't know what you call it, but just support of Trump. And just, and you've got, a, you have a photograph in the book and it's a curious photograph with Trump sitting there holding hands with Teal. I mean, I know that I'm over exaggerating. He's maybe he's grasping, grasping his hand, but it's just a peculiar image. And I know that you must have chosen it because it is peculiar. Just, yeah, just supremely uncomfortable. I think for yeah. probably for everybody, but Donald Trump, uh, yes. who never seems to be uncomfortable. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about the Gawker thing um, and you know what you're getting at is so w- one thing that Teal did for Donald Trump in 2016 was that Trump, if you remember the the Republican National Convention, there were all these like reality stars, yes. that, you know, like Chachi from Happy Days was there, yes. and like there were a bunch of Trump children, and there were some business people, but they were and very successful business people, right? But but mostly kind of from the real estate industry, mostly people who you know maybe are not like the most rigorous, you know, they're not yeah, really yeah, like yeah. The people who are going to yeah. Davos. Right. Yes. But Peter Thiel was one of those people and, and embracing Trump when he did gave Trump a lot of credibility, credibility with the Davos crowd, yes. with those CEOs, you know, who showed up, uh, you know, in December for this meeting that Thiel uh, brokered where they took that picture. And I think it's kind of the same thing with the, with the litigation, you know, the thing that, the thing that Thiel's uh, taking on Gawker does is, and and particularly not just the fact that he did it, but the fact that he claimed credit for it and that he's crowed about it ever since. Said it was the most, you know, the, his greatest philanthropic act. You know, that creates a, a permission structure, just like the, just like there was a permission structure around Donald Trump for you know people to point to that and say, yeah, okay, cool. Like we're taking it up a notch. We're not just going to say that the liberal media is out of control. We're going to actually do something about it. We're going to, you know, and you you see people talking about Peter Thiel. Like someone should Peter Thiel this this guy or whatever, you know, using Teal's name as a verb to mean, you know, uh, a billionaire going after a a media outlet. And so so I think that's the that's what he did. And I I think it was absolutely, you know, part of part of the goal. Part of one of the things he's proud of is that now people are afraid more afraid than they would have otherwise been to, you know, to write critically about um, about rich people. There's so many important stories that you tell in the book, Max. There's one that I'm thinking of that, 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 that when this happens, it leads on to other things. And this particular story I'm thinking about is the car crash. He has is driving. He's a passenger in Elon Musk's McLaren and they and Musk crashes the car, totals the car. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah, sure. So to Teal and Musk. Um... Uh, started different payments companies. The the two companies merged, becoming PayPal. Uh, PayPal was the name of the company that the the name of the product that Teal had helped create. But but strangely or or not, be, because Musk at the time was more successful than Peter Teal, Musk kind of ends up running the company. Musk ends up the CEO of this venture. Teal is on the outside, and um 
as you say, you know, it's like, and, and Musk, uh, you know, Musk actually said, I wouldn't say we're exactly oil and water, but he kind of said it in a way that <laughs> yeah. uh, when I talked to him, you know, you made you think, well, he's kind of saying, but anyway, Musk and Teal are very different people. You know, Musk is this, you know, really passionate kind of wears his heart on his sleeve is like, is the kind of guy who like goes in the casino and, you know, just bets on red and like, you know, it's just like a, a, <laughs> yeah. a really yeah. driven, just totally different personality from Teal, who is like, um, this really introverted, introspective, rational guy. Musk is the kind of guy who buys a McLaren, doesn't get insurance, and then crashes it. Crashes um, it. Teal would probably had Teal probably had insurance on Musk's car. You know, he's he's that kind of like calculating, <laughs> uh, calculating guy. I, I mean, kidding about that, but like that that's the kind yeah, yeah. of that's the dynamic. Anyway, Teal um, uh, is is probably the only person out there who kind of went toe to toe with Musk and, and came out of it in one piece. So, so Musk is running the company. He goes on his honeymoon for two weeks. And when he comes back, Peter Thiel has, and, and, and Thiel's allies, many of these guys who came out of the Stanford review have effectuated a coup against Elon Musk and, and Musk is out and Thiel is, is the CEO of the company. And that's kind of amazing, as I said, because Musk at the time was sort of more famous, you know, had more money and Thiel through this combination of just like ambition and his willingness to kind of use this network because it wasn't just the way he did the coup is that all of these ex Stanford review guys promised that they were going to quit if, if, if the yes. board didn't make the change. And yes. so as a result, he comes out ahead. And, and the really amazing thing is that Musk eventually kind of forgives him. I mean, they're not, they're not best friends now. They're kind of more like frenemies, but they, but Musk, you know, finds his way to an alliance with Teal. And I think that's a, a testament to Teal's, um, whatever the, the 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 power that he commands in Silicon Valley, because I don't think Elon Musk does that just because he's a nice guy. He does it because he feels like he has to. And yes. and that and you see that dynamic play out a lot over the course of Teal's relationships in the business world. You point out, Max, in the book, throughout the book, the the different ways that Teal flaunts the norms of business. And one I just want to pick on just quickly is with PayPal, how porn and gambling were such an important part of making money with, with PayPal until for all his conservatism just didn't seem to care at all. I know that we have just what a moment or two to go. I, I, I have to ask you about this because it, it's, it's something which I, I, people are going to ask me and that is his sexuality. It's you know so it comes out in Gorka and as you say it was a it was an open secret in Silicon Valley and wherever. What do you think about about Teal's sexuality? That how has that changed or how that has I don't know created the man that he is. Well, you know he's he has just talked about this in the very in the most you know fleeting ways, and he it's something I think the the idea his identity as as a, as a gay man is something that he's not well I think he's comfortable with sexuality like being classified in that way is something that I think you know makes him uncomfortable and and that and and that may be just be on a political grounds right he talks about how I think he's kind of a, against this idea of of you know as he calls it identity politics and and I think you know that speech that he gave at the Republican National Convention mm -hmm. where he said you know really memorably you know I'm proud to be an American I'm proud to be gay I think that moment was kind of a big moment for Peter Thiel like I think it took yeah more, you know, Teal's yes. not somebody who needs a lot of courage, but I think it took courage um, to go there. And I think it it winds up being a really important moment, not just in the Republican politics, but like in our 
society. I mean, and and because because no one had done that before. There had been an openly gay speaker at the Republican convention and, you know, he was not embraced. Uh, the, right. the the Texas delegation started praying, you know, that it was like a, a big thing. And, and that's not what happened this time. You know, everyone applauded. And so yeah. I think that that was, you know, you know, leaving all of the, the the drama that followed afterwards aside, I mean, that was a moment of equality. And it's one, strangely, that Peter Thiel, who is not really in favor of of progressive values in any way, uh, you know, helped put forward. So that I think is is pretty interesting. I also think, you know, he is and he's talked about this. He talks about being an outsider and that giving him this this kind of extra perspective, this this willingness to kind of not to, to buck the herd. And I assume that that his sexuality, you know, and particularly, you know, being in the closet, being in this conservative, um, you know, family that 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 probably played into that. I mean, he's somebody who's been on the outside, who's, you know, for, for, for a lot of his life. And, I, and I'm sure that that has helped him, you know. Do you know find these contrarian ideas and some yes. of which have been, you know, very successful and some of which, you know, are, are, are a bit scary. There are so many more questions I'd like to ask you. It's it's really is a terrific read. The book is called The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuits of Power. Max Chafkin has been my guest. Max, it's wonderfully interesting talking to you. And thank you for writing such a great book. Thanks for having me, Norman. This was fun. The links to all the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere are up at lifeelsewhere.co. To take us up to the end of the show, New music from an artist we first brought to your attention a couple of years ago on the release of her album, Resolve. Now Brighton-based Poppy Ackroyd is back with her fourth full-length LP, the title Pause. This is a collection of ten solo piano works written during the pandemic and shortly after the birth of her first child. The title refers to the feeling of normal life being temporarily put on hold. And Poppy says, for previous albums, almost as much of the creative process was spent editing and manipulating recordings as if it was composing at the piano. However, After having my son, I struggled to spend time in front of a computer. The only thing I wanted to do while he was still small, if I wasn't with him, was to play the piano. In fact, much of the album was written with him asleep on me in a sling as I used any quiet moment to compose. Here then are two pieces from Poppy Ackroyd, Seedling and Release. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Be well, be safe, and don't forget, it costs nothing. Be nice. Bye-bye.
You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.